0: This week we're looking at the book of Joel, and it kind of poses an interesting challenge for what we've been doing this semester. Um, because a lot of what I've been doing has actually been walking you all through Old Testament history, because each of these prophets um, prophesied at a certain time. But the beginning of Joel, unlike the rest of the prophets we've read, there's no he doesn't tell us which king he prophesied under. Um, there aren't any clear kind of historical markers of when Joel was written. And uh, there's a lot of debate kind of among scholars of when Joel was written, it's hard to place. Um, It it references armies invading from the north. Well, there are several times in Israel's history when armies invade from the north. It it references a locust plague. There are a lot of times that they have locust plague. Um, It references temple activities in working order and also temple activities not working. And there are a lot of times in Israel's history when... The temple is working, and they're performing the rituals, and there are a lot of times in Israel's history when they're not. And so it's hard to place time-wise, and maybe the best conclusion I found, just kind of give you all a a little bit of peace, um, really kind of the growing consensus among uh, biblical scholars is that most likely what Joel is is actually it's a liturgical text, that Joel is a real prophet that prophesied, and and, uh, his prophecy became a liturgical text because what we see in here are principles and things That are meaningful in all of Israel's history and of our life today. And so instead of being pegged to one time period, kind of like the Psalms, where uh, there were things, David wrote certain Psalms at certain times in his life because of events that happened, but they were songs that were actually sung in corporate worship over hundreds of years in Israel's history. And Joel, in a lot of ways, is the same way. It was a text that most likely was used in corporate worship. So, we don't know what it was written. And, um, and, and John Calvin's a smart guy, and this is what he has to say about that. Um, as there is no certainty, it is better to leave the time in which he taught undecided. I don't want to tell you all things that aren't clear from Scripture. And as we shall see, Calvin says, the import of Joel's doctrine is evident, though his time can be obscure and uncertain. And so with that in mind, I'm going to read um, chapter 2. Of Joel, verses 1 through uh, 21. This is the word of the Lord. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people, their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns the land is like the garden of eden before them but behind them a desolate wilderness nothing escapes them their appearance is like the appearance of horses like war horses they run as with the rumbling of chariots they leap on the tops of mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle before them people's are in anguish faces grow pale And like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall, they march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths, they do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path, and they burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city, they run upon the walls, they climb up into houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, the stars withdraw, their shining. The Lord utters His voice before His army, for His camp is exceedingly great." He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will relent, whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? a grain offering, a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord. Make not your heritage or reproach a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Then the Lord became jealous for his land, and had pity on his people, and the Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain and wine and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you, and drive him into parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, his rear guard into the western sea, the stench and the foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice. For the Lord has done great things. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I thank you for this text of Joel. And it's confusing, like a lot of the prophets are in the Old Testament are, dear Lord, but um, your word never goes out and returns void. It always works. Change in us, dear God. I pray, be with us now, Holy Spirit. Teach us. No matter what I do up here, nothing happens unless you're here with us now, dear Lord. Convict us of sin and teach us the beautiful gospel of grace. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, All semester, as we've been doing the Minor Prophets, you might have been perceiving maybe a common application. Maybe, uh, Maybe in some of what I've been saying, but especially in the prophets. Because what we've been encountering is Israel and Judah... Most often falling into sin and God calling them to turn back to him. And what, that, what, what he's really calling, what the prophets are using, is actually the Old Testament word for repent. They're constantly calling, verse 12, Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. And so tonight, what I want to do is kind of use the book of Joel to examine what is this thing, repentance? What is this thing called repentance? It's really actually the application of all the books we've been reading this semester, um, in Mark one fifteen, when Jesus preaches his first sermon ever, he says, "The time is fulfilled; the kingdom of God is at hand." Here's Jesus' first application of his first sermon: repent, repent. Sends out the apostles in Mark six. He trains some people to go out and preach his gospel. This is what he tells them in Mark six twelve. He sends them out to go tell people to repent. Matthew 4.17, again, Jesus begins his preaching in, the, in Matthew's version, and he preaches, repent. Acts 2.37-38, this is the Pentecost sermon. If you're not familiar with that, it's this massive sermon that, Pete, that Peter preaches before thousands of people. Actually, 3,000 people were converted when he preached this sermon. And he just poured his soul out and preached this beautiful sermon. You can read it in Acts 2. And he gets to the end of the sermon. I kind of envisioned what this was like. And everybody said, well, what are we supposed to do? And he says, Repent. Repent. Jesus, the apostles, Peter, the minor prophets. Overwhelmingly, the most consistent application that actually Scripture gives us when it tells us something about God, what are we supposed to do, is repent. And yet, repentance is something we don't think very often about, right? But it seems to be something that Jesus and all of Scripture is very much concerned with. And I think a lot of it is we kind of we don't understand repentance, and so we kind of don't do Repentance. And I want to introduce the need for repentance a little bit kind of this way. I kind of want to introduce how central it is to what it means to be saved, to what it means to be a Christian, to what it means to know Jesus, to have eternal life. I want to present that need this way. First thing I want to make clear, this is the not fun part of uh, preaching, is bad people will not be saved in the day of the Lord. Bad people are not gonna be saved in the day of the Lord. It doesn't come as a shocker, right? We all agree to that. Paul says in Galatians 5:9, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity. I encountered sorcery last night for the first time in my life, by the way. But enmity, strife, jealousy. He actually offered to perform incantations for me. This was crazy. Um, fits of anger, rivalries. Now you don't hear anything else I was saying. Um, Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warn you before, that those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Bad people are going to get saved. Here's the bad news. Good people don't have any hope. And the day of the Lord, Joel is talking about the day of the Lord, when the, when the Lord's army comes and execute His judgment, there aren't going to be any good people to make it either. The people who have done their best to keep the law. Romans 3.19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, who are trying to keep it, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world will be held accountable to God, and by works of the law, no human being will be justified. No human being will be justified in God's sight. Our best attempts at being good guarantee you nothing. Guarantee us nothing. The bad people aren't making it, the good people aren't making it. Here's the bad news too. Irreligious people aren't going to make it. Irreligious people aren't going to make it. Psalm 53. The fool says in his heart, the people who care nothing about God, who don't think about God, who don't care about it, maybe they're genuinely good people, maybe not. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is no one who does good. They are in great terror, and yet there's no terror. In other words, these people are in a horrible state, and yet there's no terror. There's no hope for the irreligious people. You can probably see where this is going. The religious, the irreligious people aren't going to make it, and the religious people aren't going to make it. The religious people aren't going to make it. Some of Jesus' maybe most distressing words are in Matthew 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and He says this, Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And some people are going to say on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name, and I'll declare to them, I never knew you depart from me. The religious people don't get in either. The irreligious, the good, and the bad. So what is our hope? And Joel's really pointing us to it. And my main point tonight, I'm stealing from Jesus because he's probably a pretty good preacher. And um, he is a good preacher, that's a joke. Um, I'm stealing from Luke 13. And his words are going to be the main point because they really convey... Joel's understanding of repentance, and in a lot of ways, summarize the book of Joel. Luke 13, verse 5, I tell you, unless you repent, you will perish. (coughs) Unless you repent, you will perish. Repentance is not something that we do on the side. It is central, it is instrumental to salvation. Apart from repentance, there is no life. There is no hope. So we kind of have to investigate what repentance is. And that's what I want to do tonight. You see, we have this is the not fun part of it. We our tendency is to soft pedal the gospel. You know? To we don't want to talk about the justice of God, we don't want to talk about how bad sin really is, the wrath that sin requires. I don't want to talk about it, because I want y'all to come back next week, and I'm afraid if I talk about how bad we all are, people don't want to come, right? And when we soft pedal, when we kind of water down the egregious nature of sin, when we water down the horrible, horrible, horrible pictures of judgment. In scripture, the pictures of judgment that all sin requires, we weaken the gospel, and what 's happening in churches right now as liberal churches more and more say, you know what we do 't want to call that a sin we're not, we don 't want to call homosexuality a sin you know we're, you know Scripture is dated in that regard we don 't want to call you know there are churches that are saying you know it doesn 't have to be father, Son and Holy Ghost, it could be mother daughter womb, you know <laughs> This is true. This is this is churches. Their churches is, uh, is shocking. But more and more so, what we're doing is, you know, we live in a culture. Where we don't say things are wrong. We don't say other people are wrong. We experience it in our own life. We're the mean <coughs> conservative Christians in this room, right? Because we're RUF, so we're willing to stand up on some things. But truth be told, day in day out, we don't want to tell somebody in their face that they're wrong. We kind of we all of a sudden actually become kind of pluralists when we're encountering our friends, and we don't want to offend them because they're doing something wrong, right? And we actually soft pedal gospel. That's in my own heart. And what happened in these churches, actually, where they're diminishing their view of sin and judgment, the churches are dying. Liberal churches are dying at an alarming rate. Because what happens is when you stop talking about sin and you stop talking about the consequences of it, the wages of sin, what is Jesus? What is the gospel? Is there any need? It just becomes essentially a self-help tool that provides kind of like therapeutic warm fuzzy. And there are a thousand different mechanisms that are both like mechanical, therapeutic, you know, go to therapy and read the right book, or even like chemically induced therapeutic warm fuzzies. So if that's all that Jesus is, move on find something else that's probably cheaper and easier to find in another avenue. When we stop talking about sin, we stop talking about judgment, then we stop needing the gospel and the church dies. But Jesus and Joel, the minor prophets, Peter all throughout Scripture, testify to this reality. Unless you repent of your sin, you will perish. See, in Joel, what's happening is he's beginning to paint a picture to Israel of the necessity of repentance. What happens in chapter 1, which I didn't read, is he actually describes the locust plague. And it's probably a locust plague that really happened in the history of Israel. He's probably referencing a real one. But what happens as the text moves on from chapter 1 to chapter 2, this locust plague, which was real, and it was actually really sent by God, and it was a real judgment on the sins of those people at that time, you find out he kind of begins to blend the imagery of the locust plague with also the army of the Lord. And so the imagery gets blended. And what the, what Joel is doing is what the prophets often do, which is saying this event that occurred in Old Testament history, which was a real judgment against real sin, is actually also an advertisement against the, uh, an advertisement of the final judgment, against the coming of the army of the Lord when He destroys all sin and evil. And so that's what's going on: is a real period of judgment that He's recounting, but He's also using it to say uh, to kind of blend the imagery of final judgment, saying there's going to be a time. In fact, the day of the Lord. When there's a finer, fuller manifestation of God's judgment. The language day of the Lord is all throughout the Old Testament. There's several times in the Old Testament that, we're, uh, that things are called the day of the Lord. When 722 Assyria took over Israel, 5A6, when Babylon took over Judah, those are called days of the Lord. But just like the locust army is a real judgment at an earlier time that is an advertisement of the final judgment, those days of the Lord are real days of the Lord that are also an advertisement for the final full day of the Lord. And Joel... Is blending those two ideas for us together. And so we have to understand a little bit, a couple of things about that judgment in order to understand the necessity of repentance. First of all, it is wide, it is pervasive, it goes everywhere. Uh, Verse 3 Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them. You can see the army, right? Marching down. Beautiful gardens, nice grass, trees in front of them. But behind them, a desolate wilderness. Nothing escapes them. Nothing escapes them. The army of the Lord, verse 11, who can endure it? Who can endure the day of the Lord? The judgment that is coming is pervasive, it goes everywhere to all of creation, to all people. It's not just pervasive, it's unstoppable. Verses 7 and 8, Like warriors they charge, soldiers they scale the wall, they march each on his way, they do not swerve from their paths, they do not jostle one another, each marches in his path, they burst through the weapons, they are not halted, they leap upon the city, they run upon the walls, they climb into the houses and enter through the windows like a thief. It's going everywhere and it's not going to be stopped. Lastly, it's imminent. Chapter 1, verse 15, Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord is near. First Verse Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm. An an alarm. Create immediacy because let all the habits of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. uh, Verse 11 at the end of it. For the day of the Lord is great and awesome. Who can endure it? Verse 12. Yet even now, right before it comes, God begins this call to repentance. Joel is picturing the necessity of repentance for us here and now. And we picture it in light of the final judgment that's coming, but we also picture it in light of this. Some of you know friends. I had a friend who buried somebody this weekend. Some of you might have buried somebody this weekend. I'm sure some of you know people who buried people this weekend. So while we do anticipate the day of the Lord at the same time, death is imminent. And death is a judgment. It is the result of sin. We have to deal with that reality. And you see, we kind of live in a culture, and we have to deal with it immediately. That's what Joel's creating, a sense of urgency here. In our culture, um, we're procrastinators, and procrastination has almost become like, um, because we've given it that term, and it sounds sophisticated, kind of okay. You know, like, well, i agree, oh yeah, we're procrastinators. Um, you know, Tuesday mornings, 8 o'clock every morning, Elizabeth comes down. And I've already been downstairs for an hour because I'm holier than her, but that's another story. Um, that's a joke. Um, she comes down and she says, today's trash day. I leave the house at 9 o'clock. I have 60 minutes to do a two-minute chore, which is take the trash from the back out to the front. She comes down at 8 o'clock. She says, I've got to take the trash out today. And you know what I do? I, there's, there's a little part of me that's like, yeah, you're okay, I'll get around to it. You know, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. But I don't. <laughs> and Elizabeth's laughing. And you see, procrastination, the way we talk about it and the way we encounter it, is actually, it's just kind of, uh, it's, there's kind of a lie that's a part of procrastination that we all choose to believe. And we're actually very, I mean, we're all choosing to believe essentially this, that there's, that, that what, you know, what's asked of me is really important. It's really important, you know? And there's just a reason that's beyond my control That doesn't diminish the importance of the thing you're asking of me, right? That I'm putting off. But nonetheless, it prevents me from getting to it. What procrastination is, is a more palpable, sophisticated way of saying, I don't want to do that, and it's not important to me. Right? Procrastination is the way we try to make that sentiment, you know, sound a little bit more tasteful. The truth is, you do what you think is important and necessary. Now, we would all in in this room, in a sense probably raise our hands if I said, like, you know, is school more important than watching TV? I'm not trying to get everybody to do their school work and stop watching TV as an example. But, um, you know, everybody would say, yeah, doing, getting your homework done is more important than watching TV. Okay, but do you watch TV or do homework? See, we're all liars. Procrastination is code word for it. We're all liars. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's really important. I really want to get to that. No, you don't. I don't want to take the trash out. I lie to Elizabeth every Tuesday morning. I repent in front of all of y'all to Elizabeth. I don't want to take the trash out. And try to do better. Help me out. <coughs> and you see, to put off repentance is to say that repentance is less important than the other things that are in front of you right now. Yeah, I agree. It's a really important thing, but I have other stuff to get to. Okay, stop lying. Just say it's not important to me. When is it going to be convenient to repent? What are you waiting for? What's more, what could be more pressing in your life than repentance? What's more pressing? What tasks before you are more important than repentance? I want to say this there's no sin that's too small, and there's no sin that too, that's too large that we should hold off repenting from. There's nothing so small, so minuscule. There's, you know, those, those little things that doesn't hurt anybody, right? We're just having fun. Everybody does it, it's not that big a deal. There's no sin too small. You know, everybody cheats on their tests. You know, looking over the shoulder is not that bad. Whatever it looks like. Everybody uses these notes online. I don't know what it is. But those little things that are harmless, there's nothing too small that doesn't demand immediate repentance. The call to repentance is no less pressing for those than it is for the big ones. The besetting sin, right? The thing that you're hiding from everybody. The thing that's been a part of your life for so long that you actually feel too guilty to go to church, maybe too guilty to come to earth. You might even feel too guilty to go to God in prayer because it's so overwhelming and it's so controlling. You've been hiding it for so long. The thing that makes you feel like you've gone beyond what God is willing to forgive because it has been a part of your life for so long, the Lord calls you to repentance now. He calls you to repentance now. So then what is it? What is true Repentance. A couple of different things. First of all, it's turning from something to something. Verse 12, Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, mourning, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He, resents, he relents over disaster. See, repentance is not this. It's not just Regret. It's not just being kind of like broken over your sin and feeling really, really bad about it. That's not repentance. Is not just that. The Bible is actually full of people who are torn up over their sin and yet don't know the Lord. First Kings twenty one. King Ahab, king of Israel, meets this guy named Naboth. Naboth has this <coughs> amazingly beautiful farm, and Ahab's like, "Hey, I really want your farm." And Naboth says, "No, you can't have it." So the king's wife devises a way to have Naboth killed, and Ahab then seizes the farm and takes what's his. God sends the prophet Elijah to Ahab to confront him on his sin. And this is what Ahab, how he responds. Ahab heard the words and he tore his clothes and he put sackcloth on his fat on his flesh, fasted, lay in sackcloth, and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, the guy who he sent to confront him. And he said, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Ahab is not saved. We learn later, he received judgment from God. Torn up over what he did. Wore sackcloth, crawled around in ashes, humbled himself before the Lord. That's God's language for his activity. It's not repentance. He received the Lord's judgment. Getting messed up about your sin, just getting messed up about your sin, just getting torn up about your junk is not (coughs) true repentance. It's not just confessing And even making restitution or trying to turn from your sin. It's not confessing, getting torn up, and even trying to turn or even make restitution from sin. Again, the Bible has people in it that do these things, and yet we know they have no salvation. Matthew 27. I don't have all my pages marked. Um, We meet Judas after the betrayal of Jesus. Jesus. Matthew 27 verse three, when Judas, Jesus' betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and he brought back the silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, "I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, and they say, "What is it to us? See to it yourself?" And he threw down the silver pieces into the temple, and he departed, it and he hung himself. He went and gave it back and he said, "I've sinned." and he confessed sin to the religious leaders, threw down the silver. Judas didn't, know, Judas didn't have salvation. He didn't have saving faith. He received the Lord's judgment. True repentance is not just, it's not just feeling bad about your sin. It's not even just confessing your sin. It's not even giving restitution or giving back for your sin. It is turning from your sin in some degree. But in a sense, repentance finds its full definition. It is those things. You know, in, in Joel, we see the call to weep, Right? To fast, to weep, and to mourn. And it is those things. But the call to repentance begins with actually what you're turning to. We're turning from our sin. We're grieving it. Even doing some of these things. Part of repentance will actually end up looking like some of those things that Ahab and Judas did. But it's not true repentance when you're turning from sin. It's true repentance when you're turning from sin and to the Lord. And to the Lord. It's not merely the recognition of your sin and guilt feeling bad, that's insufficient. The mark of true repentance involves all those things, but it's true repentance when you turn to the Lord. You see, faith and repentance is two sides of the same coin. It's essentially turning from placing your identity in all these other things and by faith finding your identity in that new thing. So Joel tells us, return to me with all your heart. Return to the Lord, your God. Now we apply that a little bit. Well, you know, to some degree, everybody in this room, because everybody that's American is trying to improve themselves, and probably most people in the world, but definitely Americans, right? We're all about self-improvement. So to some degree, we're really battling the things about ourselves we don't like, right? Regardless of how you're doing it, we're grieved by the mistakes we've made, by the things we're wrong. Everybody can say they have done a couple things wrong. And we're trying to turn from those things. We're trying to turn from our sin. the question is, what are you turning to? What are you turning to? Are you turning to a willful determination to be better, right? To do better. I made a mistake. I failed. I'm going to do this better next time. Repenting means like looks like me determining to do better next time. What I'm turning to is my own capacity to fix this and to do better. I have a power. I have the power to to get the grades, right? If I just determine. I have the power to stop that addiction. I have the power to get everybody happy with me, you know? I just want everybody to be happy with me. Are you turning to your own willful determination to be better? Are you turning to lesser sins? Sometimes what we do is just turn to lesser sins, right? You know, the stuff that I look at on the computer is way out of control. But if I look at it on television and they have their clothes on and it's still sexually suggestive, my heart's in the same place, but it looks a whole lot better, right? It's not repentance. You can't just turn to a lesser external manifestation of the same sin right? From perfectionism, I'm not defined by my grades. You know, I'm just trying to keep my scholarship, because that's noble, right? You know, my whole identity is not wrapped up in my score. I'm just trying to keep my scholarship. But your heart hasn't <coughs> changed. you just turned to a lesser, a smaller degree, a more acceptable external manifestation of the same heart condition. Are you justifying the fact that your heart still loves sin by just downgrading the external manifestation of it? Are you turning to just a lesser sin? Lastly, are you turning to a relationship? You know, I don't know, but if I'm just with these people, it all gets better. If I'm just with this person, it all gets made better. Are you turning to a relationship? Or are you turning to the Lord? And you see, it's not about the intensity of your feelings. It's not about the intensity and the gravity of your repentance. It's about the object of your faith, not the intensity of your faith it's about the object that you're turning towards. There's not any peace to be had if you're seeking this kind of mo- this moment where you feel like you've repented enough. You're not going to hit it. You're never going to be sincere enough. You're never going to do it enough. And there's peace to be had in light of that because your repentance doesn't save you. The Lord does. What you turn to, the object of your faith is what saves you. If you're terrorized by that question, have I done enough? The question is not, have I done enough? The question is, what have you turned to? We worship a God that moves mountains with mustard seeds of faith. He works wonders with weak, pathetic attempts at repentance. What are you turning to? Is it turning from something to something, but also it works. True repentance works from the inside out. Verse 13. Rend your hearts... And not your garments. Earlier in verse 12, return to me with all of your heart. Repentance is something that works from the inside out. You see, false repentance, which Paul warns us about in uh, 1 Corinthians 7. That Sinclair Ferguson preached incredibly on it several months ago. Um, false repentance is outside in repentance endeavoring to put on the show of religion and the show of doing better without a heart that's turning towards God. That's why Joel's making the thing. He's saying, Rin your heart's not your garments, he's kind of saying, I don't care about your garments. I don't care about the show of religion. Where's your heart? Without a heart turning towards God, all your best attempts at religion, all the devotions, all the Bible studies, whatever it is, they don't matter. Jesus doesn't care about them. He doesn't care about them. In fact, he actually warns people against doing those things without any heart for him. True repentance works from the inside out, not the outside in. That's why he says, rend your hearts and not your garments. And what does that look like? How do we figure that out? If that's, uh, how do we figure out what true repentance is? This is what it means. It means you actually hate sin for what it is. It means that you actually begin to hate sin because it's an offense to God because it dishonors who He is, because it defiles what was supposed to be a beautiful creation. We hate sin um, as opposed because it dishonors God as, as opposed to hating sin because we get caught, right? Or hating sin because we're personally ashamed or even because we don't want to be punished. This is one way to put it. Um, God would never do this. But if God, hypothetically, told you that He's going to turn the blind eye to what you're going to do this week, there will be no repercussions for what you choose to do. And God's, uh, for whatever reason, He makes that agreement with you. No repercussions. You can do whatever you want this week. There will be no judgment. Where's your mind race to? Where's your mind race to? Does it race to all the things you finally could do? Or do you still hate sin because it's evil? Just because it's evil. you hate sin or do you just hate the consequences of it? True repentance is heartfelt hatred for what is evil and sinful in our own hearts. And it's hateful for what it is because it is disobedience to the one to whom we are turning. You see, here's uh, here's another aspect of the fact that repentance is from the inside out. Also, that means it moves to the outside. It means that there are actual practical results of repentance. It's not something, we can't just have something in our hearts and it never actually affect our behavior. James tells us, faith without works is dead. What he's saying is, you don't have faith if it's not actually changing your life. So, inside, the repentance works from the inside out, but it gets to the outside. There are practical results. Here's, follow me here for a second on this. Not everybody who tears up his garment... (coughs) has a torn up heart, right? But everybody whose heart is torn grieves and weeps and probably tears their garment. It's a language that they would use for weeping and grieving over their sin. Not everybody who puts on the show of religion has a heart oriented towards Jesus, but everybody who has a heart oriented towards Jesus begins to put on the fruits of the Spirit. True repentance actually does have practical results in your life because the Bible is firmly committed to the principle that where your heart is your words and your actions reveal that. Uh, in West Virginia, during the middle of the 19th century, during the, one of the revival periods, preacher preached in coal mining country. And um, all these hillbillies in West Virginia came to faith, hundreds and hundreds. And an interesting thing happened. All these families and all these communities were built around coal mining. And what happened was, they started having this massive supply, uh, massive surplus of coal mining tools, right after the revival. The reason why was because after all these people were converted, they started bringing back all the tools they lost. They, I mean, brought back all the tools that they were stealing from the coal miners. To the point, this is recorded in history, to where coal mining companies in West Virginia had an institute of policy that if you steal tools, don't bring them back, because they actually ceased having the capacity to store all the stolen tools. It gets better. Historical documents. For the first several weeks after this community was changed, the mules didn't work at the coal mines. They couldn't get the mules to work. The reason why was the way they drove the mules, which was with such coarse language that when they were converted, they stopped cussing and the mules didn't know how to respond. (laughs) Repentance works itself out. What does practical repentance look like for you? I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of people in this room. I'll tell you what it might look like. It'll look like telling teachers you've cheated. That's what repentance looks like. It looks like telling the teachers you've cheated. Homework, tests, whatever it is, that you've broken the honor code that you committed to keeping. That's what true repentance is. It looks like, for some people, probably you need to stop exercising for a while. You might need to eat a chicken finger and a donut. Seriously. <laughs> You might need to stop exercising for a while. It looks like telling a friend about your addiction. It looks like getting accountability software. Battling it on your own, in your room, by yourself. It's not true repentance. True repentance is bringing it out into the light of the gospel and telling God's people, I need help. True repentance looks like telling people the truth. Here's the one that's going to kill RUF. True repentance actually means deleting... The movies and the music you gained illegally. Come back to RUF, it'll be me and Soren next week. Still. <laughs> <laughs> True repentance will look like deleting all that music and all those movies. And you see, if, 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 if you're not really compelled to do that, then the truth of the matter is, you don't really grieve sin for sin. You don't grieve sin because you're actually doing something illegal. You just don't want to get caught because the, thing, the truth of the matter is if any of us, you know, there actually have actually been several college students that have been prosecuted and fined like several hundred thousand dollars for stealing music, mu- uh, you know, country um, music labels are trying to make an example of them. If any one of you got caught one time and actually owed a music company a hundred thousand dollars, you would never steal music again, right? No one of no us would. We're all smart enough to do that. Which actually shows what we don't, what, what we're really afraid of is getting caught, but actually we just don't, we actually still don't hate evil for what it is. We just hate getting caught. Getting caught is enough to get us to not do it, but it being wrong is not enough to get us to not do it. True repentance hates sin for what it is. It's driven by a heart that hates sin and loves God. And it's not driven by a fear of social or academic or actually even legal consequences for coming clean about who you are. You're not driven by fear of those consequences anymore because you're just pursuing righteousness. It works from the inside out. It is ongoing. Verses 13 and 14. Rend your, your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent and, ble- and leave a blessing behind Him, a grain offering, a drink offering for the Lord your God. This is a text to be read and received by God's people, by God's covenant people. Repentance, a lot of times we think about it and most certainly in Acts we encounter situations where people are called to repent for the first time and repentance really is kind of the first fruit of their Christian life. But a lot of times we only look at the book of Acts and think that repentance is only something you do at the beginning of your Christian life. But indeed all of the minor prophets are almost all written to God's covenant people and constantly calling His people to repentance. It's not a one-time deal. It's our life. It is ongoing. Luther... Uh, Martin Luther, 1517, October 31st, passed my church history exam. Um, nailed 95 theses to a church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Him nailing that to the door started the Reformation, probably the biggest thing to happen to the church since Pentecost in Acts 2. His first thesis was this. When Jesus called his people to repent, he meant for all of life, all of Christian life to be one of repentance. <coughs> That's the first, first thesis, started The Reformation. Revelation 2.5, John's addressing the church at Ephesus. And he says this to the church, Remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the works you did at first. Repentance is something ongoing in the Christian life. Now why is that? It's because of this. The more you know God, the more you grow in intimacy with Him, the more you understand His holiness, the glory of who He is. As, he grows in your under- as you grow in your understanding of Him, you end up seeing that all the ways you fall short are just... There are, it's so much bigger and more egregious and so much more kind of all throughout you than you ever understood. I had no idea how sinful it was until I got married. It's like this marriage, is, and especially parenting, is this massive sanctification tool that God uses. Because all of a sudden every day I'm beginning to see when you have four little ones that rely on you for everything, like for life, you actually find out how selfish you are. Because you get really irritated by people that depend on you for everything. When you have somebody that you're with... 24-7 and never separate from fun, you find out how much you love yourself and how inconvenient you really think everybody else is. I'm not a paragon of holiness. Before I came here today, where's Nick Farkas? Before I came here today, I had to call Nick and apologize. Actually, not just apologize, I asked Nick for forgiveness. Not because I tried to kill him two weeks ago. I'm still trying to decide whether or not I should repent of that. I think that was a genuine accident. There's no ill will toward him. I'm not a paragon of holiness. Y'all know I've sinned against several of y'all. I keep finding out my heart's worse off than I thought it was. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, Jesus Christ came in the world. This is Paul into the church playing movement, having written several books of the New Testament. Um, at, way after his conversion, Paul says this, Jesus Christ came to the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost, the chief. He doesn't say of who I was the chief. He says of who I am. Present tense. Charles Spurgeon Describes the Christian life this way sinning and repenting. Sinning and repenting make up the Christian life. Repenting and believing in Jesus. Repenting and believing in Jesus make up the consummation of the Christian's happiness. How can the lifelong work of repentance be the consummation of our happiness? It's because of this. You're going to keep finding out your heart's a lot darker than you thought it was. But when you bring, when you turn from that and come to the Lord, and, you, and your sin is all over and you have nothing to do, this is what happens. You keep finding out His grace is more beautiful, His grace is more expansive, it's more wonderful than you ever understood. Your repentance actually becomes the consummation of your happiness. I've encountered all kinds of sins that it knows there. I'm going to find out more I know. But I haven't found one that Jesus said, you know what, my grace stops there, my forgiveness stops there. Repentance is lifelong, y'all, and It's sweet. Is sweet. Lastly, it's not a work. I'm combining those last two points. It's not a work, it's a grace. Repentance is not a work. It is trusting actually in God and trusting in God's work. Because repentance doesn't save. It doesn't save. God saves. Verse 13 Return to the Lord. He is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love; he relents over disaster. God relents over disaster. He saves. It's not repentance is not a condition of salvation. It's actually a fruit of God working faith in you, of working salvation in you. Romans two four. Sorry. Um. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Acts 5, Acts 11, some of the more powerful sermons, they're all powerful, in Acts, we're actually told God granted repentance to the Gentiles. God granted repentance. Even out of night, God might be working repentance in your hearts. But see, repentance, it doesn't pay the penalty for our sins. It doesn't work atonements for us. What it is, this is actually the means by which we receive God's saving work. The offer is free. God paid the price. You just have to let go of all the things that we're holding on to to receive it. All the things that we're trusting on to, all the things that we're trusting, that we place our trust in, let go. Take hold of the Lord. That's what repentance is. Parenting toddlers is all about repentance all the time. I actually mean for the toddlers. We're constantly calling our children to repentance, both in a spiritual sense, but actually in kind of a daily practical sense. When I offer Mary Walton and Shelby on Saturday, hey girls, do you want to go to Chick-fil-A instead of having lasagna from this past Wednesday night? <laughs> the offer is free. I'm paying for the Chick-fil-A. Their, cho- their choice to receive it is not the purchase price for the chicken. The offer is free. All they have to do is receive it. All they have to do is forsake the three day old lasagna and turn to Chick fil A. <laughs> they don't pay for anything. That's what repentance is. But of course, our simple condition is much worse than even the girls in that situation. That even when the gospel is offered, we don't repent, right? And that's why there's good news that God grants us repentance. That God leads us toward Himself. He gives us actually even the capacity to receive. And when we turn to the Lord, what is it that we receive? Y'all, we receive forgiveness. We find that at the cross, all of those who came to the Lord will find that their sins were forgiven and God doesn't just tolerate us now. He doesn't. He's not just kind of now marginally upset about who we are, but you know said He's accepted us, so he's going to accept us. All our sins been wiped away with. All of our sins been paid. And now his intention is not just to tolerate us, it's to bless us. The Lord became jealous for his land, had pity on his people, and the Lord answered and said to his people, "I'm sending you grain and wine and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Verse 21, "Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice." Verse 26, I don't know if y'all have it. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Verse 18 in chapter 3, And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, the hills shall flow with milk, all the stream beds of Judah streambeds of Judah, will sh- shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, the water of the valley of tame. God doesn't just tolerate us, y'all. He blesses us. We find satisfaction in His sweet mercy and satisfaction and joy in new life and a new creation. Two very short closing notes. Some of y'all might come in here periodically, maybe even week to week. Some of you might go to church week to week. And for a moment, engage Scripture and engage what's going on. But in a sense, your hearts were really never cut by your own sin. You're not really distressed about the evil in your life. You know, you're here and the gracious call to repentance doesn't really move you and things kind of don't really change after encountering Scripture. <coughs> the love of God's not terribly sweet to you. And I pray for you and I would encourage you to pray that God would afflict you, that He would reveal to you the danger that you're in so that you could respond to the call to repentance and find that it is sweet. And find that it is a grace. Secondly, I want to say this. A lot of times we respond to the call to repentance this way. Alright, i got to repent. i got to work up repentance. I don't do it enough. I don't do it sincere enough. And here's the application. It's my favorite application, right? Stop. Stop. Stop trying to work up repentance. And run to Jesus. When you're focusing on your act of repentance, is it real, is it not? I've got to do it the right way. I've got to do it enough. I feel so guilty all the time. Stop focusing on repentance. The whole point of repentance is actually that you stop focusing on your work and you turn to Jesus. So stop and run to Jesus. Let's pray.